Our reading for this afternoon will come to us from Ruth, from the first chapter, and that will also be our text for this, morning, for this afternoon's service. So we'll read together from Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, 
and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So far the reading of God's word. We'll now sing in response and we'll sing standing Psalm 89, the stanzas 1 and 6. As was mentioned, the text for this afternoon's sermon is Ruth 1, which we read together, so we won't read that again. Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Christians, one of the concepts that can be hardest for us to wrap our minds around is the belief in God's providence. The belief that there is nothing in this life Nothing in this universe that occurs outside of the realm of God's control. Now it's true that while life is going well, when things are, are occurring just as we'd planned, then we don't really struggle with God's providence. But when life goes off the rails, when things all of a sudden go badly, when something horrendous happens unexpectedly, well then... Then we might have some struggles. Then we might have some questions. And yet, when we look at Scripture, when we look at the the source of truth, we see the belief in God's providence is something that is affirmed time and time again. We see all these instances where God uses unexpected people or He unexpectedly uses events. And He uses them for the good of His people. We actually see God's plan of salvation and it unfolds piece by piece. And perhaps one of the finest examples of God's providence that we find in all of Scripture comes to us actually in this little book of Ruth. Here in this book of Ruth, we we get this snapshot, we get a little glimpse into the life of one Israelite family. And we get to see how God can use even the wayward actions of people in order to further his sovereign plan and in order to bring glory to his name. So I summarize the message this afternoon as follows. We'll see that God shows undeserved grace by bringing wayward people home. We'll see in the first place the wayward people. Secondly, we'll see the undeserved grace. And finally, we'll see the unseen providence. Now, before we jump into identifying the main characters of this narrative, perhaps it's helpful if we step back for a second and and give ourselves a bit of a backdrop to this story. Well, the opening verse tells us that all of these events are occurring during a period when judges ruled the land. It's a period that we, we don't know everything about, but certainly the book of Judges itself gives us a lot of insight into what that period of time was like. And one thing that we notice certainly is that this was a period that was marked by Israel's unfaithfulness. It was a period in which they did not walk in the ways of God. And so we see time and again that God raises up these judges, these servants to speak out against God's people, 
so that he can drive them back to repentance. So it's not really surprising that during this period of unfaithfulness, that God allowed the other nations, the surrounding nations, to come up and to attack the people of God. It's not surprising that God allowed hardship to come upon the land. Things like famine, drought. Because the people of Israel, they were not walking in God's covenant ways. And so God was withholding his blessing and he was allowing these punishments to come upon the land. That land that was once described as flowing with milk and honey. And it's in this context, it's in this background that we encounter this small group of people, this wayward people, a family that is faced with an incredibly difficult decision because of the famine that's on the land. We're told that they are Ephrathites, they're from Judah, or more specifically, they are from Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread. The father's name is Elimelech, his wife's name is Naomi, and and they and their two sons, Malon and Kilian, were told they, they pick up and they decide to move to the land of Moab. And if we were to stop the story right here and to look at things purely from a logical perspective, it actually seems like, like a pretty good decision. I mean, Elimelech here is actually perhaps opening the door. He's perhaps providing a means by which this family can survive the famine that's on the land. So is it Is it even really fair to call them wayward? Is it right to do so? Well, this afternoon we're going to see that there are two ways in which this family is actually wayward. The first thing we have to look at is the fact that Elimelech and Naomi are actually going and they are moving out from among the people of God. We need to understand that Israel was God's people. They were a chosen nation, a people that were set apart, a people that he had called out from among the surrounding nations. But in this story, Elimelech and Naomi are actually, they're reversing the trend. And rather than living as part of God's people that were set apart, we see them actually picking up and and they're going to live among the nations once again. Rather than recognizing that it was Israel's unfaithfulness that was the source of the problems that were occurring in the land, they have actually begun to doubt God's faithfulness and God's ability to provide for his people. And on account of this, they make a decision to move. But to further highlight the waywardness of their decision to move, we also need to give some thought to actually where they're going Because they're not just going anywhere. They are going to live in the land of Moab. In the land of Moab, the country of Moab, was a nation that was characterized as one of God's most detested enemies. These are the same people, you might remember, that, that refused to allow Israel to have access through their land when they came up during the period of the Exodus. And not only do they not allow Israel access... Numbers 22 through 24, it actually tells us that they go and hire Balaam, this sorcerer. They hire him to come out and to throw curses down upon the people of God. And then a little closer to the time period of our story, 
We can also read about King Eglon, king of the Moabites, who comes down and conquers the people of Israel, rules over them for a period of 18 long years until God raises up Ehud, this left-handed warrior who kills the king, who delivers the people. The history of Israel and the history of Moab is one that is characterized by animosity, tension, hatred. And so as we start to see these pieces fit together, we get some sense of what a wayward decision it was to leave the people of God and to go and move to live among the Moabites. At the same time, we also need to recognize that the family is also being wayward in a second way. Because we're told that that when they moved to the land of Moab, that Elimelech and Naomi allowed their two sons, Malon and Kilian, to marry Moabite women. The first is named Orpah, and the second is named Ruth. And we need to understand this decision as well in the larger context of Scripture. You can look at a passage like Deuteronomy 23, in which God speaks quite sternly against the concept of an Israelite, a person from the people of God, going and marrying a Moabite. But it's a principle that's actually pretty consistent throughout Scripture. You can look at the New Testament, and there are various passages that speak about the idea of someone from among the people of God, a believer, who goes out and who marries an unbelieving partner. And wherever we look at these passages we have to recognize and admit that it's a practice that does not meet with God's approval or God's favor because it is a dangerous practice and God treats it as such. All we have to do is is to look at a story or the story of Solomon to see a prime example of how an unbelieving partner or partners in his case open the door for him to go astray. And so what Elimelech and Naomi were doing when they allowed their sons Malon and Killian to go and marry Moabite women was essentially allowing them to play with proverbial fire. They were opening the door, so to speak, for them to fall into the, te- into the detestable faith practices of the Moabites. These were practices that included things like child sacrifice. It's amazing then That when we look at this story, we see that God is still able to use even these wayward actions of this family in order to further his sovereign plan. And yet it's a plan. It's a plan that comes with a great personal cost for this family. We're told in verse 3 that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he dies. And then a couple verses later, we're told that Malon and Kilian, the two sons of Naomi, that they die as well. In the course of these two short verses, the family line of Elimelech is essentially brought to an end. In a society that was dominated by male headship, Naomi is is left a widow, just her two childless daughter-in-laws, to comfort her might be easy to look at this and, and to jump to a quick conclusion and say, well, these men, they were, they were struck dead on account of their sin. This was a punishment from God. And we need to be cautious because when we look at the, the text, 
There's not really enough there to jump to that conclusion. What we can say is that these events do not happen outside of God's control. He does allow them to happen, and he does so for a reason. Now, it might be easy this afternoon to sit here and and to read this story about Naomi and Elimelech, Malon and Killing, and, and kind of to wag their fingers at, or to wag our fingers at them and their foolish decisions. But we'd be wise to look at this story and to also consider how does it apply to us. And perhaps I could do so this afternoon by asking you a question. Have you ever experienced famine in your land? Have you ever experienced famine in your land? Now, I recognize that for many of us here today, we probably don't know what it's like to experience physical famine. And yet I think all of us here know what it's like to experience periods of spiritual famine. Times where we don't understand God's plan. Times where we don't necessarily feel his closeness. And we need to ask ourselves, during those periods in our lives, How did we react? Now, I won't presume to speak for you this afternoon, but I can tell you that I've had periods in my own life where I was very frustrated with God's plan. Times where I would say, you know what, God, I I think we have tried things your way, and it clearly doesn't seem to be working out, so so now we're going to try things my way. And when you think about it, such a reaction, it's not that different from Naomi and Elimelech. We are so prone to want to wanna take things into our own hands. And we're so prone to put ourselves in situations that, that pose a direct challenge to our faith. Because by nature, when we boil it down, we too are wayward people. And so there are times in our lives where God has to allow things to get worse in order to bring us back. There are times when we, like the prodigal son, we need to be broken down completely before we're willing to come home. And it's true that God's ways, they can be difficult sometimes. Sometimes they can take us down dark roads. And to be honest, there are times that we're just not given any answers. And yet this passage still has a lot to say about encouragement and hope. Because when we look at the narrative, we realize that God doesn't forget about this family. God doesn't cut them out of his plan. But instead, what we see is that God, in his time, at just the right time, God brings them back. And it's an example that we see of God's undeserved grace, something we'll look at in the second place. You know, the text tells us that in the course of time, the Lord sends word to Moab that there's food once again in in the land of Israel. And when they hear this news, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, they pack up and they decide to head back. For Naomi, this is somewhat of a logical decision. I mean, there's really nothing holding her to the land of Moab. But her daughters-in-law are actually in a bit of a different situation. And it seems that at some point in time on the road back, 
that the reality of these girls' situation kind of dawns on Naomi. And so she decides to stop and, and, and to have a heart-to-heart with these girls. After all, she's going home a widow. She has no children, no real inheritance. She has nothing to offer them. She recognizes that the life they are destined for is an incredibly hard one. So she decides to stop and she says to them, please go back. Please go back. May God deal as kindly with you as you've dealt with me. But please go back. You can almost sense that there is a special relationship between these these daughters-in-law and their mother. She wants them to be happy. She wants them to find another husband and to have children and, and, and to have hope and an inheritance and a future. But she recognizes that realistically that's just not a possibility for them. So she urges them, please go back. But the girls, they won't be swayed. They will not change their mind. Instead, they dig in their heels and they say, no, we will go with you. So Naomi now is forced to have a a very hard conversation with them about the reality of the life that they're facing. Because the only real way that these girls could actually be included within the people of God were through the laws of the leveret marriage, and something that's described in Deuteronomy 25. And essentially what it says is that a, a, a man or a close male relative could marry a deceased brother's widow in order to provide for the family line to continue. And while that may have worked out within the Israelite community, we have to remember that these girls were Moabites. They were heathens. They were from that that pagan country. Who was going to want to marry them? So Naomi says to them, she says, Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait till they were grown? Naomi is begging these girls to be real about the situation. Go back, she says, at least there you'll have hope. And it seems like at this point in time, Orpah is is finally overcome by the reality of the situation that she's facing. She loves her mother-in-law. She weeps over her. And yet she recognizes that it is probably best and easiest for her to to return to her people and, and her culture, her gods. But Ruth, Ruth will not be swayed. And in her words, we get a sense of, of actually the commitment that she has. Because she's not just being committed as, as a loyal daughter-in-law. I mean, that is probably part of the picture. But Ruth is making a commitment to Naomi's people. And more importantly, to Naomi's God. She wants to be part of that covenant community. She wants to be one of the children of God. And she's willing to leave everything she knows behind in order to do so. And we see that in her words. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You know, Ruth not only speaks these beautiful words of faith, but she calls down the Lord, the God of Israel, to hold her accountable for what she said. And her words are so full of commitment that we're told that now Naomi no longer urges her to go back. Here too, we can, we can stop just to take in what God is actually doing here in this situation. Because it's remarkable. God has used the wayward actions of this Israelite family in order to bring salvation to Ruth. To this Moabite. This citizen from a heathen country. God has reached out to her. Changed her heart so that she will leave everything behind. In order to be counted as part of the people of God. And the amazing thing is that this story is just giving us a glimpse, a foretaste of the greater grace and mercy that God would show later. When God would call out people from all tribes, all nations. When God would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that people like you and me can become part of that covenant community. That we can become sons and daughters of the living God. You know, this story gives us an amazing picture of grace. Because God didn't choose Ruth because she was particularly beautiful or likable or funny or charismatic. No, God chose Ruth because in his sovereign wisdom, he decided that she would play a part in his plan. And that's the same thing that God continues to do today. As he calls out people like you and me. And we need to stop more often to actually take that in. Not to take it for granted, but to actually think about it and dwell on it. That God shows us grace. Not because of anything that we could or would do. Fully aware of our sinful nature, fully aware of all those skeletons that we have in the closet, God shows us grace. He does not leave us in the proverbial land of Moab. So today, let's make sure that we are also echoing that confession that Ruth makes. Because we need to recognize that All of mankind at some point in time still faces the difficult decision that is faced by Ruth and Orpah. All of mankind at some point in time is brought to the fork in the road, to the threshold of what Jesus calls the wide and the narrow gate. Sadly, so many, so many like Orpah or like the rich young man in Matthew 19, they will will choose the wide gate. Because they know that the decision to go through the narrow gate is one that comes with a great personal cost. It's much easier to return to what is convenient and to what is comfortable. And let's not fool ourselves, that's the same temptation that faces all of us as Christians every day. 
It's much easier to do what the world does. Much easier to live the way the world does, to run our businesses the way the world does, to serve the gods that the world puts before us. <laughs> then we need to remember the words of John 15, verse 19, where God says, You do not belong to the world, but I have called you out of the world. So let's thank God this afternoon, brothers and sisters, for changed hearts. Hearts that are filled with the Holy Spirit. Hearts that allow us to want to leave behind our natural homeland. So that we too might be counted among the people of God. And let's recognize that this too is all part of God's unseen providence. And we'll look at that briefly in closing. God's unseen providence. Now it's kind of sad that as Naomi returns home to Bethlehem. She's not able to see that this narrative, that it's all a glimpse, a foretaste of God's mercy. She doesn't have the entire account of the book of Ruth. She doesn't have the entire account of scripture. She doesn't see how this is going to fit into the big picture. And that's pretty clear when we look at her reaction as she returns to Bethlehem. We're told that when she comes back to Bethlehem, that, that her return causes quite a stir. There's conversation in the town. People are saying, is, is this Naomi? Could this possibly be this woman that, that left so long ago? And for her part, Naomi wants nothing to do with that woman who left so long ago. In fact, she tells the people there, she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant but call me Merah, which means bitter, because the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi, she feels oppressed by God, deprived of his love and his kindness. And you know what a lesson God is providing us in this chapter. Because we too have so many opportunities to feel oppressed. So many times where we might feel deprived of God's love or God's kindness. Times when we feel like the Almighty has brought us back empty or that He has brought His hand out upon us. We so quickly, so quickly we want to point the finger at God. We want to question His plan. And yet the reality is that our problem, it lies in the weakness of our human faith. Our problem lies in our inability to keep God's covenant faithfulness in focus. This really was the heart of the problem with Elimelech and Naomi. They'd forgotten about what God had done for his people. What God had done for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob They'd forgot about those amazing stories of God parting the Red Sea, of God taking down the walls of Jericho. And as Christians today, sometimes we can be tempted to think, well, if, if that had been us, I mean, if we'd been in their shoes, surely we wouldn't have forgotten. And yet we today are in a situation that often finds us more guilty because we have the entire account of Ruth. 
We know what God's plan was for this woman. We know how God would make Naomi full again. We know how God would give Ruth this amazing position as the great-grandmother of the mighty king David. And we actually have the entirety of Scripture. We have the story of God's plan of salvation. A story that we, in many ways, celebrate this past week as we think about Christmas. As we think about the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That one who came to save us from our sins, but the one who also came to be born of that very same line of David. We have everything at our fingertips. And yet so often we too can take it for granted. So our our application today, the message that we receive, is that we need to also put our trust in God's plan, like Ruth. To put our trust in a plan that that we don't always fully see, but a plan which we see time and again fulfilled in Scripture. Because it's, it's the plan of God our Father. It's the plan of a loving God, of a God who has consistently showed Himself faithful to wayward people, to people who are undeserving of His grace. So even though it can be hard, we need to be honest about that. Even though sometimes we find ourselves in incredibly dark and and challenging spots, we need to place our trust in God's plan, in a plan that is bigger and better, that has an ultimate and eternal destiny. Because it's only in that light that we can understand the words of Romans 8, verse 28, where God says, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So may you all, may you all continue to love the Lord your God, to trust in His promises, His plan, and to be comforted by his providence, his faithfulness, and his undeserved grace. Amen.